When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works and others in the book world about their jobs, what those jobs entail, and the books that they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Today, I am chatting with Laura Morelli about The Stolen Lady. Laura is an art historian and USA Today bestselling historical novelist. She holds a PhD in art history from Yale University and is the author of fiction and nonfiction inspired by the history of art. Laura's award-winning historical novels include The Painter's Apprentice, The Gondola Maker, The Giant, and The Night Portrait. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Before we dive in, I want to recommend another podcast to you. If you like thrillers and true crime, try out Killer Content, a podcast hosted by Emily Webb. Here is some more information about it. I ended up getting uh, stuck in the back of a trailer in the trailer park with a guy with a gun one night when I got a little bit, a little bit careless, maybe following somebody. And um, I knew I wasn't going to get killed, but I, you know, it, was, it wasn't a pleasant night. If you're always looking for your next thriller, chiller or whodunit, join me, Emily Webb, for killer content inside the crime writer's mind where I'll be talking to crime-obsessed authors about how they create their characters, their stories, and their crime scenes. I've always wanted to set one of my thrillers on an island because the great thing about setting on an island is that it can be magical and beautiful, particularly during the day and when everything is fine, but at night and if there's a storm and you can't leave the island and no one else can get to you, because the ferries actually shut down. There's no escape. Killer Content is a Smartfella production made in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Welcome, Laura. How are you today? Hello, Cindy. I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. I loved The Stolen Lady, and I can't wait to speak more about it. Thank you. Thank you for reading. Of course. I love historical fiction, especially things set in World War II and dealing with art. So as soon as I saw your book, I said, that is the book for me. Great. (laughs) I think it's fascinating too. Well, why don't we start with you giving me a quick synopsis of the book for those that haven't read it yet? Sure. Uh, The Stolen Lady is a dual timeline story that takes readers back and forth between Florence, Italy in about 1500, and the countryside of France in World War II. And the Mona Lisa is really at the heart of this story. It's, uh, it's a story that is about two women separated by almost 500 years, 
both women hide the Mona Lisa with unintended consequences. How did you come up with the idea for this one? Well, as I mentioned, Mona Lisa is at the center of the story. And for me, it was a fascination with this portrait that I've really had for decades. Um, I saw Mona Lisa when I was 12 years old. I had the great privilege to travel to Paris. And um, I saw her at that time at a very impressionable age. And when I started thinking about this book project, I actually went back to my shelf and pulled my diary out from that long ago trip to Paris to see what I had written about seeing the Mona Lisa, because at that time, she certainly did make an impression on me. And what I wrote was that I had seen Mona Lisa smiling. And back in those days, you could get right up to the painting. (laughs) You can't really do that anymore unless you time it just right. But in spite of the fact that I had seen Mona Lisa smiling, there was something about her expression that seemed a little bit sad or melancholy to me. And there was this idea of the melancholy Lisa that stayed with me for a very long time. And it was a a theme and a curiosity that came back to me when I started working on The Stolen Lady. I was going to ask you if at that time you were able to get a lot closer to it, because I know the first time I saw it, I was able to get much closer to it than you can get to it now. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and it makes sense because they're wanting to make sure they protect it. Were you surprised then at the size of it? I know people always talk about they get there and they think because you've seen so many reproductions and maybe you were young enough that you really hadn't yet, but that it's so much smaller than people expect it to be. People tell me that all the time. And I had to laugh because leading up to the release of The Stolen Lady, I began to post some of the incredible archival photographs that were taken in the 1940s when the portrait returned to the Louvre. And some of these photographs are just incredible. And when I started posting them on social media, people immediately said, oh, that, that picture's not real because <laughs> that, the, the painting is much smaller than that. And um, I said, no, actually, this comes from the National Archives of, of, <laughs> of France. <laughs> you know, and it's a real photo. And, it's, and I think that art can be so deceiving in that way, you know, especially if you've taken an art history class and you've sat in a darkened hallway and you've seen these giant, colorful pictures on the screen. And then you go into a museum and you think, oh, is it, was it really that size? <laughs> so that it can often be deceiving. It can be. And, you know, sometimes it's the other way around as well, that you'll go in and you'll be like, wow, I had no idea it was that large. So it is kind of funny, as you said, if you've sat in a class or in the case of the Mona Lisa, which is just reproduced all over the place everywhere, you're going to have seen it in many different sizes. That's right. And I think we, we see it in our mind sometimes more than we see it, you know, in, in, uh, in, in real life. And, you know, our perceptions, when you, whenever you look at a reproduction, your perception is always a little bit skewed about things like size, scale, um, color, you know, lots of visual aspects. Well, that's true. I was completely fascinated by the moving of the various artworks all over France in your book. I mean, that was just so intriguing to me in the process and how they were just kind of one step ahead. That must have required a lot of research. A lot, yes. And when I look back at this, I just think, wow, you know, I had the idea of the Mona Lisa, Leonardo da Vinci, World War II. What in the world was I thinking (laughs) trying to take on this research project? Because 
it really was a doozy, but it was so fascinating. I mean, this true story of the the moving of these works of art across the countryside of France to keep them out of the hands of the Nazis, I think is one of the most amazing adventures of the 20th century. I mean, you truly couldn't make it up. And I hope to have captured even just a small fraction of the spirit of that journey and that just incredible group effort to save these works of art for the future of humanity. Not only did you capture the spirit, but you captured what it was like going over those bumpy roads and in these trucks and all the different people it required and the the network and making sure they were staying ahead of the Nazis. I mean, I truly love, love, loved that part of the book. I just was completely fascinated and it actually made me want to go read more about it. Thank you. Yes, it's really, um, it really is an incredible thing. You know, I, I think little known fact, the, uh, the Germans either stole or tried to steal every known painting by Leonardo da Vinci. And in some cases, they succeeded in others, like in the case of the Mona Lisa, they almost succeeded, but not quite. It's, uh, it's just incredible that the, the links that they went to, to, take these pictures. And then on the other side, the links that the Louvre staff went to to save them and hide them from the the advancing Germans. Absolutely. And I did not know that they had tried to take all of the da Vinci drawings and paintings. That's interesting. Well, you know, the uh, the old master paintings were considered to be, you know, kind of at the at the very height of civilization by the Nazis. Of course, they had all these hierarchies, right, of uh, of people and works of art. And so Leonardo da Vinci would have been considered, you know, at the top of their list. And so they they sort of had a hierarchy of things that they were looking to take. And the Mona Lisa certainly would have been at the top. That makes sense. And then on top of all of the World War II and art research, then you had to go back to his time period and research all of that. I mean, I just kept thinking her research must have taken her an incredible amount of time. And then you must have found all these little cool tidbits that you probably couldn't work into the book without it being 800 pages long. Oh, yes. I ended up writing twice the, the number of words that, that I really needed for this book. And then, you know, having to go back and whittle it down was quite a, quite a revision process. But the, the Renaissance history is equally fascinating. I mean, you know, a lot of people don't realize that the Mona Lisa was actually never delivered to its patron. And I wondered about that, too, you know, that mystery of of why is it that, you know, Leonardo, we think that the picture represents Lisa Giardini, who was the wife of a prosperous wool trader in Florence at the turn of the 16th century. But we have no evidence that Leonardo da Vinci actually delivered the portrait to Lisa or her husband. Uh, instead, he took it with him on muleback across the Alps when he was in his 60s and brought it to France, where he was working at the court of the French king. And that's, in fact, how the portrait ended up in the French royal collection and then eventually in the Louvre. But that was sort of a curiosity and a question that I had, um, both as an art historian and then as a historical novelist, to uh, try to understand, you know, what were the circumstances there and how did that happen? And trying to research in that time period, I would assume, was probably pretty difficult. You know, actually, we know we have quite a a lot of resources from the Italian Renaissance. I mean, and especially for Florence, the Florentines were pretty good record keepers. And in fact, Leonardo da Vinci's own father was a notary 
Um, a notary at that time was someone who was sort of like a cross between a, an accountant and an attorney. They were big record keepers. He had incredibly meticulous handwriting. They you know, recorded business dealings and contracts, marriage contracts, dowry inventories, tax records. I mean, the archives in Florence are full of the, of records like that. So there's there's quite a lot, but certainly not as much information as we have for the 20th century. You know, for World War II, we can go back and see even what the weather was like on a particular day. Uh, certainly can't do that for the Italian Renaissance, but we have some really tantalizing pieces of evidence for the Mona Lisa. And one of the most interesting ones to me is um, we have Lisa's baptismal records. And in that record, her father records the fact that she had no dowry, which is kind of the kickoff for the story. And, you know, the fact that she had no dowry and yet ended up marrying a very influential man is, is sort of fascinating as well. So sometimes you get these tantalizing details like that that can really be the impetus for someone's story arc. Absolutely. And then it kind of led you into a whole other, I don't know, can of worms maybe is the wrong thing. But the political scene in Florence in that time period. Oh, yes. I mean, it certainly was a can of worms and more. <laughs> I mean, the, that's what's so interesting, I think, about the Italian Renaissance is, you know, we think of it on the one hand as this time of incredible sophistication and beauty. We think about the art and the renovation of all of these ideals of the ancient world. And yet, at the same time, it was an incredibly brutal time period just in terms of violence and unrest and instability in the political system. Well, in Italy then, I guess, wasn't even really Italy. It was all these different kingdoms, or I'm not sure what they call them, sovereigns. Yes. I mean, you know, Italy is um, only a very recent nation. And so, right. you know, certainly Florence was a city-state. It was independent at this time. But, you know, there was a lot of unrest around the exile and the return of the Medici family. And so my protagonist at the turn of the 16th century is a woman named Bellina, who is a servant in Lisa's household. And she is somewhat gullible and finds herself sort of wrapped up in some of these intrigues that are happening in the city at the time. I thought that was very interesting because I don't know a ton about that time period, as you can probably tell. But I was so interested with her storyline and kind of what was happening in Florence at that time period. I think a lot of people don't realize the fact that uh, Michelangelo was working on his famous sculpture of the David at the same time that Leonardo da Vinci was working on this portrait of, of Lisa. And so, you know, to think about the Mona Lisa and the David being made in the same place at the same time is almost too good to be true. It's almost, you really, it's one of those true stories that you just couldn't make up. And I loved your inclusion of all of that and the way the two interacted or didn't interact. Yeah. So we know, I mean, there, there are historical you know, references to the fact that, that Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo Buonarroti were not friends. <laughs> 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 and, and understandably so. I mean, at the, by this time, Leonardo was a, you know, he was an older, accomplished artist, Michelangelo was a, a young whippersnapper who was, you know, pretty, pretty ambitious. And the two got along like water and oil. Makes sense, though, like you said. Well, what about your favorite character to write in the book and your least favorite character to write? Oh, wow. Good question. 
when I started working with Leonardo da Vinci in my last book, The Night Portrait, I started with primary sources and uh, writings in Leonardo's own hand. And that's the way that his voice came to me in the first person. Because as soon as I read his own words in the first person, it was impossible for me to think about his voice in any other way. And so Leonardo, on the one hand, you know, was kind of a, it was sort of a, a giant burden, let's say, to get it right, you know, to really address or speak in the in the words of someone of that stature from history. But on the other hand, he's such a fascinating character, and I really enjoyed writing his character very much. So my least favorite, I don't know that I have a character that I don't like particularly, but I think, you know, I did struggle with writing certain scenes of Bellina's character. Now, Bellina, remember, is this 16th century servant in Lisa's household. And I've wanted to write about someone for a long time who was really influenced during this period of Savonarola, who was a a fire and brimstone priest that influenced a lot of people um, just before the turn of the 16th century. And you perhaps you've heard of the bonfire of the vanities where the Florentines threw all their precious and expensive belongings onto a fire. And I've always wanted to examine the mind of someone who did that, who took a, a precious treasured possession and was compelled to throw it into the flames. And so Bellina turned out to be the perfect victim. But to really put yourself in the mindset of someone living at the end of the 15th century who would have been so captivated by the words of this fire and brimstone priest that they would throw their own precious belongings on the fire, that took a lot of reading, a lot of contemplation, a lot of really thinking about what might go through someone's mind. So definitely a challenging series of scenes to write. I think that's what often happens when authors are thinking of their least favorite character to write. It's not that they didn't like the character. It was just what came the hardest to them. You know, what was the most difficult to get down on paper? That's right. And, you know, someone asked me recently if I could go back and spend a day with one of the characters from the book, who would I choose? And it would absolutely be Belina. (laughs) So she definitely was not my least favorite character. In fact, I would love to go and actually walk around with her through the city of Florence for a day because she certainly had access to places that other people wouldn't. You know, she was, could be in Lisa's bedroom. She could be down at the market. She could be in Leonardo da Vinci's workshop. She can be in a lot of different places and just the right place at the right time. Exactly. Though she didn't really have control over her own life, which I thought would be so difficult. Yes. And I think, you know, as a historical novelist writing about women, we are faced with this all the time, which is that you are writing about people who had a very narrow series of choices. Um, Certainly, though, I think her mistress, Lisa, would have had even fewer choices than Belina would. You know, a lot of times the higher the status of a woman in history, the fewer choices that she might have. That's true. I hadn't really thought about it that way. But she would have more resources at her disposal. Correct. Yes. Well, what about title and cover? Those are always things I'm completely fascinated about. It seems like titles either start out with the title that it ends up at or you go through a hundred different ones. How did The Stolen Lady come about? Oh, you know, it's so funny that you asked me this question because earlier today, 
when I opened up Facebook, you know how it always shows you those memories of one year ago, two years ago, and so on. My memory of today from one year ago was it was a picture of me sitting on the balcony of a hotel room where I had taken myself away for 48 hours to figure out what the heck was the title of this book. (laughs) (laughs) And and yeah, it was a it was sort of my final set of revision of really tough revisions. I had gotten my developmental feedback, you know, from my editor and so the title was one of the really tricky things I was working through that weekend. And um, this was one of those books where I went through and did a big brain dump of you know, a few dozen titles. I had a couple of really good ones. And then I went to Amazon and I figured out that actually they were already you know in use with recent books. So I went back to my editor and my agent with a list of maybe a dozen titles. And we kind of noodled over them and spread them around to some other authors and, and agents and editors to get their input. And The Stolen Lady was the, was the winner. But, you know, sometimes a book title is really tricky, much like a book cover. You know, but in other cases, um, I've also written a historical novel about the story behind Michelangelo's David. And that book is called The Giant. And it was called The Giant before I even wrote the first word. I mean, it was just very clear. It was easy. I never considered another title. And so it just depends very much, I think, on the book and on the genre. And uh, certainly a a title can carry so many ideas and pictures in the reader's head and expectations about what they're going to read and what that experience is going to be like. I think that's exactly right. And the other thing that you mentioned that I think also is very relevant for titles is what other books have come out recently close to when yours is coming out. Because you can have a wonderful title that'll fit your book perfectly, but someone else has already used it or used something very similar. That's right. Yes. And titles are not copyrighted in the same way that, um, you know, the text of your book is. So there can be uh, multiple books with the same title and that's fine. Um, But, you know, if you've got a a book that's recently come out with with that title, it's probably a good idea to pick something a little different. I think so. I agree. If it's farther back in time, I don't think it matters so much. But I think if it's pretty recent, it's confusing to people. That's right. What about the cover? Well, the cover came right out. And and I am a visual person, as you can imagine, being an art historian. And I'm very opinionated about book covers. And I love book covers. I think they're just so interesting. I love looking at them and analyzing them. This is one that came right out of the designer's computer, and I went, oh, that's great. I was so excited about the colors, and I loved the fact that they were able to incorporate the Mona Lisa on the cover. So that one was super easy. My last book, The Night Portrait, went through a few different rounds. In fact, the editors and designers, the art department at HarperCollins had sort of settled on one cover and we all liked it. And then we sent it out to some of the booksellers and we got feedback that maybe it wasn't exactly right. And so they went back to the drawing board and came up with a completely new cover. So you never know. I mean, tr- covers as well. Um, sometimes they the, a designer can get it right, right out of the gates. And then other times it can go through a lot of revisions. One of the things that fascinated me when I started doing all of this was how many people do have a say or at least are contacted or asked about a cover. Like you're talking about booksellers. You know, you think, okay, the editor, the agent, the art department, you, everybody said, oh, this looks perfect. 
And then it goes out to booksellers or the marketing department and they say, oh, no, no. So, you know, that's kind of funny that it, it takes that many people okaying a cover for it to get out into the world. Yeah, absolutely. And just think about it. If you walk through an airport and you go to a bookstore and you see a bunch of books lined up, you can probably easily say, even without picking a book up, you know which one is the fantasy, which one is the historical novel, which one is the romance. I mean, we, we are, our eyes are very sophisticated and trained to recognize these patterns and tropes and images that appear over and over. It's, you know, this book is like that one and that book is like the other one. And so, you know, getting that all right and meeting the reader's expectations enough to where someone will pick up a book and want to turn it over and read the back cover. You know, there's, there's a lot of steps to, to that moment. I think that's right. I get a little frustrated sometimes that publishers do feel like they have to kind of categorize it all because I think it's so cool when you have some brand new cover that doesn't look like every other romance out there or whatever it is. And this doesn't apply to your book at all. I think your cover is fabulous. But I think sometimes there are some of these where they all look alike almost, you know? That's right. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, humor in the historical fiction community about the woman in period dress seen from the back with airplanes in the sky. You know, every, every book has that, you know. Right. But it is at the end of the day, we're communicating a message to the reader. Hey, this is a this is a 20th century historical novel, you know, with a female lead character. And, you know, if someone has read another book like that, that they liked, then they are apt to pick it up and at least turn it over and read the back cover to see if it's something they'd like to read. I think you're right. But it's just always interesting to me. It's one of those things that I continue to ponder and just find so fascinating. It is. I think book, I'm a book cover geek. So <laughs> I think it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> me too. And I spend probably way too much time on it. And what I really love is when you look at the cover before you read the book, and then you look at it again after you read the book. And a lot of times I find all these new things in the cover that I didn't notice before until I've read the story. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, some people think that the cover, you know, has to show a main character that's in the book or tell something about the story. But I really think that the cover's job is one, to set the reader expectations, like I just mentioned, but also to give the reader a feeling of the emotional journey they're going to go on by reading the book. And that can be really well communicated in a, in a well-designed cover. I think you're right, because I do think sometimes there'll be a cover that looks really light, and then you read the story and it's not light at all, and there's been a disconnect, or vice versa. It looks a lot heavier, but it's really a lighter story. Well, are you working on anything at the present that you'd like to share with me? Yes, the book I'm working on right now is set in Florence between 1943 to 45, and it's set around the evacuation of the Uffizi galleries during World Ooh. War II. Now, things in Italy were a little different than they were elsewhere in Europe, because as you probably recall from your history, um, Italy was um, an ally of Germany for much of the war. And so uh, the way that art was handled at that time in Italy was a little different and definitely more complex. And so I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with uh, with the story and looking at the protection, quote unquote, of art from all of these different angles and, and during that this 18 months that the story takes place. Oh, that sounds really good. Thank you. And there's no title yet. So <laughs> I'm still working on that. <laughs> so next time we talk, I'll be surprised with the title. 
Well, before we wrap up, what about what you have read recently that you really liked? Oh, I'm constantly reading. I read fiction before I go to bed every night. And um, I've read a lot of great things recently. Probably my favorite has been uh, Maggie O'Farrell's book, Hamnet, which I know got a lot of press and rightly so. I was really in awe of the sensory detail and her ability to really immerse you in Tudor England. I mean, if you want to feel like you're sitting in a, a house in the Shakespearean era in England, it's just a great, great read. I also really enjoyed Christina Baker Klein's The Exiles, um, which has a really unique setting and a couple of big surprises that I won't give away. But I really enjoyed that journey into a, a setting that I really didn't know much about. I just finished uh, Homegoing by Yah Giasi. I hope I haven't butchered the name, but also really epic and, you know, epic story that spans many generations. I always love those kinds of sagas that go on and on from generation, one generation to another. Another one I really enjoyed that I got to see as a pre-publication draft is Melody Wenower's Anticipation. Uh, it's coming out later this fall, and it takes place also over generations in Greece and a particular setting that I didn't know very much about. So I always love it when a historical novel can transport you somewhere you've never been or to just an unfamiliar time period or setting. I I'd always get a lot out of reading that. But I try to read outside of historical fiction, too, because I always think that it brings more to my own perspective as a writer. I, I enjoy thrillers. I, I enjoyed uh, Mary Kubica's The Other Misses recently and some of these really kind of dark and scarier books as well. So those are the, some of the ones that I've enjoyed recently. I really like historical fiction as well, and I like it for the reasons that you just described. And I also like it like a book like yours, where it can take me to a place that I have read about, you know, many times, World War II, but some story that I had never still learned after all this time of reading World War II books. So that was one of the things that I really liked about that. So I agree, a time and place I haven't been or someplace I have been, but a story I wasn't familiar with. Yes, absolutely. And there are so many World War II books, and yet there are still so many stories that we haven't heard in individual acts of heroism and individual stories that are that are just amazing. I agree completely. And you mentioned that with Italy. I have read several World War II books set in Italy, but still just very isolated instances. But Italy was so much more complicated during World War II, as you said, than a lot of the other countries. So, you know, I always feel like I learned something when I read a book set during that time period there. Yes, me too. Definitely. And I really do need to read Hamnet. She's one of my favorite authors. I have read almost everything else she's written, but it is so far back in time. And I just don't usually go quite back that far. And it just sounds like it's so sad, but everybody has been recommending it. So I have it and I need to just pick it up and read it. Right. Well, I have written a couple of books set during plagues and it's a topic that I find really interesting. <laughs> yeah. But it's... I will say that that's not the, you know, the main kind of theme of the book, surprisingly so. You know, it is kind of a, a big backdrop of the story, but it's just the sensory details are amazing. And I keep hearing that. And I love Shakespeare. And in fact, we visited his home just a couple of years ago, right before the pandemic. So it really should appeal to me. And so I need to just sit down and pick it up. It's great. Good. 
Well, Laura, thank you so much for joining me today in the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I really enjoyed speaking with you about The Stolen Lady. Thank you, Cindy, and thank you again for reading it. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please consider joining my Patreon as a page turner. Follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Maggie Garza for sponsoring this episode, and I hope you'll tune in next time. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.